Hi, I'm Dr. Alex Fullard. I research childhood trauma and embrace at Telethon Kids Institute. You're listening to Embracing the Mind, where people who have experienced mental health challenges share their journey with me. I also talk to researchers about the latest treatments, data, and insights into mental health. Today, I'm talking to Gabe Milton, who moved to Melbourne in 2020 just before the city entered one of the longest lockdowns in the world. Gabe opens up about how the pandemic had a huge impact on her mental health. Next, I'll talk to Dr. Sophie Lee, a postdoctoral researcher and clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. Sophie joins us to discuss the impact that COVID and lockdowns have had on young people's mental health and well-being. She also tells us how we can use technology in new and innovative ways to help with things like sleep and other health challenges. The Melbourne lockdowns were among the longest and the strictest in the world. Can you tell me about what was happening in your life at the time that those lockdowns were occurring and then your experience during that time? Yes. So uh, interestingly enough, I only moved to Melbourne in April 2020. So pretty much right at the start of the big lockdowns. Um, Prior to that, I was living in New South Wales. Um, And so I moved to Melbourne in, in April 2020 and then things escalated pretty quickly from memory. To be honest, that whole period is now a bit of a blur. I couldn't even tell you specifics about when we went in and out of lockdown. Um, I just remember the really long one. It was over 111 days. Um, That really felt like an endless journey that was just never going to end. And so to be totally transparent, I am a health professional. So at the start of the lockdowns, it actually made me feel really safe because to me, that was the best way of slowing the spread to the vulnerable people in the community that I worked with, which gave people a chance to, you know, get vaccinated and things like that. However, um, as the lockdowns became longer and longer, it was extremely isolating to not be able to go and see family, to not meet new people in Melbourne. I guess I'm very lucky in the fact that um, I have a beautiful wife and we have a great relationship. So being at home was really safe for me. And of course, with my two dogs, one of which was purchased during lockdown, (laughs) that might've been a coping mechanism. Um, But we really just had to take every day by day and take things slow. I think What was really, really damaging to my mental health was that exposure to the news and social media and, you know, hearing Newcastle go into three days of lockdown and everybody complaining. (laughs) That really sent me and it was just really frustrating to hear that and the inability to connect with people who understood what we were going through was the most isolating thing. Obviously, moving to a new city, we were really keen to explore the local area, make new friends, get involved, and that was really hard to do during lockdown. We were both lucky, though, that we had a consistent income stream, so we were both able to work from home. Um, Being a health professional, I did have to go out into the community to see patients, um, and that in itself was very anxiety provoking for me because I was quite afraid of, you know, getting COVID and passing it on to someone so vulnerable because it was such a heightened state. I think the whole whole of Australia was just so heightened about COVID at that time. It was really hard um, 
to feel calm and measured in my approach to things. So I was always in a really heightened state of arousal all the time. I was super alert to things. And upon reflection, I probably worked as much as I ever have done because working from home, there were just no boundaries between what was home and what was work. Um, so that was quite impacting on us and our routine. We just had no routine at all. And without routine, you know, you really struggle to function day to day. Yeah. Well, that, that brings me to my next question. So how did the lockdowns and, and really COVID impact on your mental health? Yeah. So, um, again, being transparent, I'm quite an open person. I, already struggled with anxiety um, prior to COVID. So you can imagine how that was exacerbated with the messaging um, from the media, hearing awful stories about people dying from COVID, getting really sick, not having that direct physical support from my close friends and family. Obviously, my wife and I, we were really supportive of each other, but we weren't able to sort of share that with other people as easily as we would have liked to. I think my stress levels were also quite heightened um, with work, um, trying to meet the needs of patients but also be really cautious in in doing that, Um, but also meeting KPIs at work as well and having that pressure of meeting standards, that was quite difficult. And I think, unfortunately, it made me have a really negative outlook on the world during that time. There was not a lot of happiness or things to look forward to Um, because it was never ending, but I understood the reasons for the lockdowns. Right. So you you had struggled with anxiety prior to the lockdowns and from what I'm hearing, it it got worse. Would you say that you were also struggling with some symptoms of depression during that time? Absolutely. Yes. Um, Definitely. I, even after the lockdowns, I sort of struggled to get out and about again and feel safe doing so, which is really weird. You'd think after being in lockdown for so long, you just want to get out and get back to the things that you usually did to get a sense of comfort and familiarity. But I was almost like, I'm not ready to go out yet. And, you know, I was still, and still I'm quite cautious with, you know, hand hygiene, wearing masks and things like that. I've really struggled to get back to what I was prior to COVID. And it sounds like it was an incredibly isolating experience for you and your wife as well and kind of doubled with the fact that you just moved to a new city. So how did the lockdowns impact on your relationships with others? Oh, I think in terms of the isolation factor, that was really difficult because, you know, we couldn't travel back to New South Wales for big family events and we always felt like we were letting people down by not doing that, but we physically and legally couldn't <laughs> do that. I, I do recall, um, and I think a lot of people listening might remember this, but it was um, sort of that period December to January 2020 to 2021. We were able to go home to New South Wales for Christmas And then from memory, it was New Year's Eve at about six o'clock at night. um, The government said that any residents in Victoria had to get home um, before midnight. So that left us six hours of travel. We were 10 hours away. Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's so stressful. it, It was awful. And I think a lot of people you know, New Year's Eve were likely drinking and then just decided to drive from Byron Bay and places even further away than where we lived, uh, where we were visiting, sorry, 
And we remember we just made the decision. So the, the consequence of not getting back before midnight was that you had to isolate for two weeks. Um, and so, and then the other consequence was that they were threatening to actually close the border on people. So we obviously needed to get back in a reasonable amount of time. So we stayed the night and ended up going really early New Year's Day. We got back to Melbourne and then the messaging the day after was that you had to get a, a COVID test. And the day after we waited in line for about five hours, ended up getting turned away and then had to go back a second day to finally get tested and get the negative result. Um, but during that time, we just couldn't, you know, get groceries and the little things like that without breaking the law, um, which seemed quite ridiculous. But I think in terms of impacting relationships, more so our, our parents and close family were worried about us. Um, and I appreciated their concern, but when we were to, when we voiced how we were really feeling, I just never felt like they really understood what we were going through because they had a lot more freedom than we did. But yeah. I'm quite lucky that I have a good, um, close group of core friends that we communicate via FaceTime and social media. And we're all spread out as it is anyway. So yeah, I think that was the main impact on relationships, but obviously my wife and I, we're still together. We're all good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's really good. And it sounds it sounds to me like you were using kind of, you know, social media and, and WhatsApp messaging as a form of connection perhaps to cope. Does that sound right? Yes, I think it was a way of coping. Um, however, social media was also a cause of frustration because I saw everybody else's stories and they were basically living I'm using air quotations as normal as possible while we were stuck in, in lockdown for hundreds of days. So I think it needed to really be a balance. And I tried to not go on social media as much, but I also craved that connection. So it was a bit of a, <laughs> you know, that's it. That's it. The catch 22. Um, yeah, really difficult. So how did you deal with it? Like what were your coping strategies during lockdown and during all those uncertain times? I developed some very interesting coping strategies. Um, online shopping was one of them. <laughs> I'll list some of the things that we purchased, and this is no word of a lie. We bought an exercise bike. Um, we bought actual bikes that you ride outside. <laughs> I bought rollerblades as well. We wow. obviously... <laughs> You went on a fitness journey, weren't you? I really was because, remember, this is the time where we had that one outing per day within five kilometres. So I really had to mix it up a bit. Um, a walk just wasn't cutting it for me. Um, we obviously got a, a second dog, which is a huge um, thing and absolutely no regrets about that. Um, they're like our children. but So that, was a, that really was a coping mechanism, um, sort of that you know, oh, I'll get this and then that'll make me happy. But it was so temporary and it really didn't fix the problem. Um, we did have a few sort of online games night with friends who were also in Melbourne. And so we would literally create a Zoom meeting and then, you know, do some online board games or card games or trivia um, and have virtual dinner together, which was really nice. And I really felt sorry for a lot of my friends who lived alone because there was a period of time where you couldn't have anyone over and then they introduced that little friend bubble or partner mm. bubble, which was nice. But they were sort of – and those coping me mechanisms are really privileged because we both had income. We could afford to do that. And so many people in Melbourne 
did it way tougher than we did um, and obviously people living in unsafe um, situations. So I just wanted to recognise that. Um, I think the other coping mechanism is that <laughs> we, we tried to tried our best to separate work and home. It was pretty tough being in a, a two-bedroom apartment. Both of us had to have a desk, so we had a desk in our bedroom and the spare room. Um, so we ended up trying to sort of cover that up as much as possible. So you're not just waking up or going to sleep with your workstation right there. And look, like a lot of other people, I probably did um, drink more red wine than I probably should have. Yeah, fair enough. I think I did the same thing. And um, <laughs> I, you're bringing back all of these memories of me playing those online board games and online trivia, I remember was a big thing. Um, yeah, look, it was it was tough. And it sounds like you guys did it really tough there. So what would be your advice to anyone listening who who went through that or, or is still perhaps struggling with that experience? It might sound a bit cliche, but I think just be really kind to yourself. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to, you know, get back to the way we were or act in a certain way or oh, because a lot of other people are socializing and doing all these things I need to be as well and I think we need to do what's right for us as individuals um I think it's really important to take the time and space away from the media and away from social media to kind of detox because we're just exposed to information all day every day we don't have a moment where we're not stimulated and we need to switch off and rest for our mental health and our brain (laughs) so Mm. And honestly, I really loved getting out into, you know, regional Victoria, into nature. I love staying in tiny homes and switching off the grid just to recharge and have some space and literally fresh air. (laughs) Mm, mm. Yeah, speaking about kind of the messaging around COVID, do you find it kind of disconcerting that, you know, for your mental health, that public health messaging has changed so much since the lockdowns? It's really different now. What are your thoughts on that? It is so different and it it is it does bother me to be honest because and I, I'm coming coming at this from a health perspective, not an economics perspective. I just want to make that really clear. To be honest, I just don't trust people to do the right thing. And so I think the way that things have relaxed now, it really does concern me that people are out and about with COVID likely not doing the right thing, potentially spreading it to really vulnerable people. Unfortunately, I wish people could do the right thing and I just don't have faith in that to be honest I think there are some really selfish people in this world and they need <laughs> structure and guidance but also I understand too that people often don't respond to being told what to do but I think the messaging could have been done a little bit better to begin with um, there was just a lot of mixed messaging and so people were getting different information and everyone was stressed and just doing what they thought was the right thing to do. Um, but I, I, it does bother me how relaxed things have gotten. I think people do need guidance and support from the government and healthcare system to make good decisions for themselves and other people. Mm. And it probably didn't help that messaging was different across different states. There were different rules for different people. Absolutely. Mm. So do you believe that the lockdowns were necessary and justified at the time that it was happening? At the time, from a health perspective, yes, I think it was needed to stop the spread, get people vaccinated, 
And I know that had some really terrible impacts on small businesses and people's livelihood. And I think that's absolutely awful. And I don't have the answers as to how exactly it could have been done though. So I know people, I'm saying all these things, but I don't have, you know, the gold standard as to how it should have occurred. So I definitely understand both sides, but from a health perspective, I do think they were necessary to slow the spread. But you know, I look around now and I'm thinking, gosh, it's just rampant. And I kind of think, what was the point? And I know that's a bit conflicting, <laughs> but that's just how I feel about it at the moment. I know that people crave a sense of um, familiar, familiarity in what they, they were used to. And I think that's why people were so eager to get back to how things used to be. But again, they're lose, losing hindsight of COVID still being really prevalent in the community and people are still dying, but we're just not hearing about it. Well, speaking of, have you, you've had COVID yourself? I had it, I've had it once. Yeah, back in. Once? I've only had it once back in May last year. Gosh, I've had it three times and I live in Perth. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So how did you cope with it when you, when you had it? Um, I, look, I actually got quite, I was pretty sick. Um, but I had just stepped into a secondment role. It was a promotion. And so I definitely didn't take as much time off as I should have. I probably took two whole days off to rest and then worked from home and it did make my recovery slow down a bit. Um, I really should have taken the whole week to rest and recover, but my wife and I have actually had COVID at completely different times and we isolated in the apartment and neither one of us caught it from the other person which was quite lucky. Um, so, yes, I've just had it, the well, touch wood, the one time so far. Did you feel pressured to keep working? I did, I did, but I think that pressure came from myself and my high standards. Um, I didn't feel pressured from my workplace to keep working. That was just a personal decision that I made and looking back now it probably wasn't the right one but I wasn't in the headspace to make that decision at the time. I think a lot of people can relate to you in that sense um, of having that kind of that drive to just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you going now? I'm okay. I definitely am still um, experiencing anxiety, but it's not totally due to the lockdown, obviously. Um, But the main thing that's really impacting on me is I guess my tolerance for people, just little things that people do drive me insane. I get really angry at the smallest things. Um, For example, I went out the other weekend to just go buy a coffee and this woman just walked past me and coughed straight in my face and that just ruined my whole day and it's made me realise how um, unhygienic people are. I think prior to COVID, we didn't really take notice if people cover their mouth or wash their hands. And I think we're all really heightened to that now. And so I think my tolerance of people and being in confined spaces, I really struggle with. I get really anxious in crowded rooms with no ventilation. Um, you know, often at social events, I have a couple of drinks just to relax and have a good time. And I would like to get to a point where I don't need to do that, but I think it'll take some time to recover because I think it was a pretty traumatic event to go through, especially if you're in Melbourne for that really long lockdown. Um, And I think people are still impacted by that. And I think there are obviously some positive things that have come out of it though, such as more flexible working arrangements and things like that. But it, it definitely has still it does have an impact on me still. Mm. 
So you still feel like you experience, it almost sounds like traumatic stress, almost like PTSD. Yeah. 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 So how are you coping now? What are you doing now to to try and heal? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I am back into sports. I play AFL for an amazing footy team. We train twice a week. We play on the weekends, so I'm really active. I also um, ride my bike to and from work these days. I'm always sort of moving and um I find that really relaxing and sort of stress relieving. Is that the um, um is that the bike that you bought during lockdown? Correct. <laughs> yeah. Very good. You're putting it to use. I can't say the same about the rollerblades though. Um <laughs> but yes. You've got time. <laughs> There's time, but yes, that is the bike that was purchased during lockdown. Um, I'm also seeing a psychologist. I see a psychologist every fortnight. I wouldn't say my reason for seeing them was purely due to COVID. I went through some pretty traumatic personal things during that time that, um, actually do have PTSD for an unrelated matter. So, you know, anxiety, PTSD, it's not a great recipe. So I have, I am seeking that support, um, which I find really helpful. Obviously I've got a my my wife and a gorgeous group of friends and my family who are um, a wonderful group of people for emotional support as well. Well, it sounds like you've got all the, the things in place to help you heal. Yeah, hopefully. It, it takes time and I think I'm still, I really do need to get into a better routine. Just those basic things like going to bed earlier, eating regularly. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Lee uh, here with me today. Sophie, would you like to introduce yourself? (laughs) Yes, sure. So my name is Sophie Lee. I'm a clinical psychologist and a postdoctoral research fellow at the Black Dog Institute. Uh, My research really focuses on youth mental health and um, developing an understanding of uh, those aspects um, of young people's lives that contribute to their mental wellbeing and trying to develop treatments to um, improve mental wellbeing. Amazing. So you kind of, you work both clinically and in research. Is that right? That's right. Yes. That's really cool. So you get to kind of take the research into the real world. That's right. It's a unique perspective, I think, to have to see um, to see the, the, the clinical aspect and what's missing and what's required. And then also being at the forefront, cutting edge of, you know, developing new knowledge and, and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a really nice position to be in, actually. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. Now, Sophie, I want to talk to you about COVID. So you've done a little bit of work in this space and you would have seen this in your your clinical work as well. So, you know, we know that COVID and lockdowns and social isolation have had a huge impact on mental health globally across the board, not just, you know, certain age ranges. What is the research kind of showing us? Yeah, so the research that I look at is in relation to young people, so that sort of 12 to 24 age range. And what the research shows is that COVID did have an, an impact on youth mental health. Um, when we look at the aggregated data, so the meta-analyses, it shows that there was actually a doubling of clinically significant depressive and anxiety symptoms in, in young people. Um, and that was that was data that really was collected in the very early stages of the pandemic, so when we were under really strict lockdowns. That, I mean, that's huge, doubling of, of kind of 
depression, anxiety, like that's that's massive. I actually didn't know it was like that big. Do, do you think that, so that was early on, do you think that this that was kind of like a blip and we're kind of getting back to normal or has COVID had more of like a, a lasting impact on mental health? I think that's a really interesting question and one that we don't really have the data to answer accurately yet. Um, but when we when we do look at the data that's that's emerging, what it seems to suggest is that there were in those early stages of the pandemic when we were under really strict lockdowns, there was a really significant impact on, on mental health symptoms. Um, and that gradually declined over the following sort of 12 to 18 months so that um, those, those rates or those levels of clinically significant symptoms reduced. But it, the data does seem to indicate that they're still a little elevated compared to pre-pandemic. So, so, so while, while there, was, there was a degree of stabilisation and a return to normal, the levels are still a little elevated. And I think what that suggests is that for probably for the majority of people that uh, exhibited increased symptoms, um, they showed a degree of resilience where they were able to bounce back reasonably quickly or, or adjust to these new difficult situations that they were experiencing. However, saying that, there are probably a proportion of young people as well um, that are continuing to experience um, ill effects from the pandemic. Right. And do you know if there are sort of like factors that contribute to, to you know, some some young people being able to kind of bounce back versus, you know, the other young people who are kind of still experiencing the kind of impact on their well-being? Mm. So pre-existing mental health difficulties or, con- or concerns was definitely a predictor for more prolonged um, impacts of the pandemic. Um, young people who were more flexible and adaptive um, in their in their way of thinking and their behaviours, which which is basically what resilience is, definitely tended to fare better than those who were a bit more rigid or concrete or um, unable to to adapt to, to new situations. So I guess what what springs to my mind, and I and this is probably based on my own research, you know, I did a PhD that was looking at autism in, in young people, and I know that for some young autistic people, uncertainty and a kind of a lack of flexibility or, or you know, trouble adapting is, is kind of some of the things that they typically struggle with. So do you reckon that, you know, this cohort of people, so people who are on the on the spectrum, uh, or perhaps even other young people. I'm thinking maybe even ADHD. Um, that sort of the that cohort of people. Do they struggle more with COVID and the uncertainty and lockdowns and having to quickly change their routine? Does that kind of come out in the data as well? I'm not. I'm not sure specifically about particular cohorts of young people, but certainly uncertainty was a, a massive thing that we heard anecdotally as well in the consultations that we had in our work at Black Dog um, when we were speaking to young people. Is is that just that degree of uncertainty about when things were going to go back to normal, if they were going to go back to normal, whether or not they were going to actually contract COVID, and what that would actually mean, um, and, and flow on effects from that in, in relation to like 
schoolwork, uni, academic performance, and then even how they're going to um, enter the workforce and things like that. But I think you make a really interesting point um, that um, young people on the spectrum where there is less less flexibility um, in terms of adaptation, but also um, adjusting to new routines and new situations the data would certainly suggest that those cohorts of young people probably would have had a more difficult time. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that definitely came through with, you know, my personal relationships. I've got two autistic brothers and they really, really struggled with lockdowns in particular and, like, I guess uncertainty around employment. So I could imagine, you know, a lot of young people were experiencing the same thing. What about kind of other areas within mental health? Were there certain, I don't know, aspects, I guess, of, of well-being and mental health that were more impacted than others? Loneliness and social connectedness certainly came out um, in the data, and that's not surprising given we went from living our lives in a reasonably normal way to suddenly being in prolonged lockdowns, especially, you know, places like Melbourne where where the lockdowns were for really extended periods and there were, there were multiple lockdowns. Um, so that... That um, lack of social connectedness, especially in that age group where peer relationships are, are, are so critical, um, you know, it's it's so critical to their emotional, social, and and psychological development. That really had a had an impact on on young people. Um, we also noticed, in addition to depression and anxiety symptoms and and just generalized psychological distress, there was quite a significant impact on young people people's sleep as well. Um, which again, it's not particularly surprising because sleep is ha- having a, a routine, a, a regular routine throughout the day, but also a sleep routine is really important to support sleep health. So during the pandemic and especially during periods of lockdown, um, the young people didn't have, they didn't have school, they didn't have their usual sporting activities, like all of those normal things that they would engage in, they were suddenly just completely, completely gone. Um, and so it's not surprising, um, that, yeah, that they experience difficulties, um, with their sleep. My gosh, that actually makes so much sense. Like a lot of research, right? Like someone explains it to you. It makes total sense, but I haven't thought about it before. (laughs) (laughs) And because, I, you know, teenagers, they, they need more sleep. They rely on sleep a lot because they're developing and their brains are going through a critical period of development that would have such an impact on well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I think these are the, these are the questions that are really interesting for us to be asking now. Um, like what was the, what was the longer term impact of things like disturbed sleep on, on young people's development and, um, and on their well-being more generally? And that's, that's just data that's not out there yet. Maybe it's coming. No, that's totally true. I guess like you're still working in this area, right? And COVID is certainly not over. And it's, I mean, when you're in research, you you know that it takes a long time. But I think that like people in the community don't realise how long research takes. It's a really long, arduous process. And these longitudinal studies, so the studies that take years and years for us to be able to like see kind of trends, you, you kind of have to wait. You've got to wait for those results to come out. It'll be very interesting to see what the impact is on mental health, well-being, our bodies, our our brains. It, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. Yes. So, Sophie, I want to talk to you about some of your research. You research technology and how we can use that in the mental health space 
Can you tell us about what you're looking at? Yes. Uh, so there, there are probably two aspects of technology that I look at. One is how we can utilize or innovate with technology to provide mental health care to young people. Um, and the other is looking at more the impacts or the effects of technology on young people's mental health. Um, and that's looking at their sort of day-to-day um, typical use of technology. There is a really, really strong link between screen time and mental health outcomes where increased screen time is associated with um, increased symptoms of things like depression and anxiety and psychological distress. But what's really important to consider in this um, data is that we don't know the directionality of that relationship. So we don't know, we don't have firm evidence to suggest that screen time is causing mental ill health in young people. It could actually be the other way around where young people who are psychologically distressed or experiencing heightened symptoms are turning to technology as a coping mechanism. Um, or as a means of regulating their emotions. And we just don't know. I mean, it could be a bit of, a bit of both. It could have bi-directionality. Um, so lots more research is needed in this space to, deter- to determine um, where the causal relationships lie. And, and that is going to then inform guidelines and interventions around screen time. And I think something that's really interesting is, um, you know, social media, there's, there's a lot in the media about social media and its potential harmful effects. And when we look really closely at the data, um, the results are actually really mixed in terms of whether or not social media use is associated with harmful outcomes. And I think probably the reason for that is that um, while social media may have harmful outcomes, it may also have beneficial outcomes. And we really saw that during the pandemic. Young people were connecting with their friends. They were, you know, doing all sorts of things via social media that were actually supporting their mental health. So I think we need to take a more nuanced approach when we're looking at screen time and social media to understand the harmful effects, but also the potential beneficial effects. Right. So you're kind of, you're looking at both sides of it. Like what is happening in terms of, I'm guessing like social media. That's a big one, right? Yeah. That's pretty much the tech space. Like that's huge. (laughs) But then also what can, how can we utilize it in, you know, a form of like a mental health program? That's right. Yeah. So, so probably like to date, the bulk of my work is looking at, um, capitalizing on the fact that young people, most all of them have a, a mobile phone. So how we can do, how we can deliver evidence-based interventions via a smartphone. So we've developed at the Black Dog a number of mental health smartphone apps um, that young people can use. And the benefit of an app is one, they're always accessible because young people always have their phone with them. And second, they afford a degree of privacy and anonymity that is really important for young people. Um, and also they're more accessible that like they're, you know, they're very cheap or free. Um, so young people can, uh, can access them more easily than a, a mental health professional. Yeah, for sure. You don't have to go in anywhere. You can kind of just do it on the spot. Now, in terms of kind of the things that you're trying to target with these interventions, is it, you know, like depression, anxiety, are there more things that you're trying to target? So we have at the moment two apps. One is called Sleep Ninja, and that actually targets insomnia in um, 12 to 16-year-olds. We're currently adapting it for younger children as well. So that's really focusing on improving young people's sleep. And um, that's really important for us because sleep is so strongly um, correlated with other mental 
mental well-being outcomes um, and is increasingly recognised as a powerful risk factor or something that precedes mental ill health. So um, I, I guess our rationale there is if we can improve sleep, we're actually indirectly targeting depression and anxiety as well. And it's a really, it's a non-stigmatising approach because young people are much more willing to engage in a sleep treatment than they are in a depression or anxiety treatment. So that's one, that's one app that we've got. Um, the other app is called Clearly Me and it's, it targets, um, anxiety and depression again in 12 to 16 year olds. And we're still running a randomized control trial, um, testing the efficacy or the effectiveness of that app. That's really cool. So <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like, the Sleep Ninja app in particular, in particular, that's just a cool name, firstly. But secondly, I, I guess it seems like a really great idea because what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the middle of the night? You check your phone, right? Like you, that's the first thing I do anyway. I grab my phone. I'm like, okay, I can't sleep. Open TikTok, scroll, scroll, scroll. Um, so that just, it makes so much sense that that's how you would target something like insomnia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I should say though that we did co-design Sleep Ninja with young people and their parents and there's there's quite a lot of awareness about the effects of digital technology on sleep. And so we we did design Sleep Ninja to be used um, during the day. So it's 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 used in it. So the Sleep Ninja is the young person's sleep coach um, and the young person chats with Sleep Ninja through a chatbot function and, and Sleep Ninja delivers the principles of cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. But it's designed to almost be used um, to, to mirror going to see a therapist. So you'd set aside sort of 15 minutes in your day and that's when you do your training session. Um, and each training session that's completed, you're awarded a new ninja belt until you're a black belt in sleep. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so the idea is very much to use it during the day, not not at bedtime um, because your yeah, parents and young people themselves um, didn't want tech to be disruptive to their sleep, which is completely understandable. I wonder, are you going to roll this out for new parents as well? Because I could see such a need there. <laughs> That's a really good point, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, the principles of cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia are consistent across age groups. So it certainly it certainly could be used for um, for adults. Um, yeah, any adult experience, any disturbed sleep, Sleep Ninja. It's publicly available now, so you can download it from the App Store. Um, but, yeah, new parents could certainly benefit from a bit of Sleep Ninja in their lives. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> And do you think that because there is now, a, I mean, we've noticed globally there's a push towards using tech in sort of like a therapeutic way. Do you think that that was pushed because of COVID? Like we've kind of had to go online? I think engagement or, or utilising technology to deliver mental health interventions is something that was happening and happening at an accelerating rate before the pandemic. But I think certainly um, more public awareness around digital delivery of mental health interventions um, occurred during the pandemic. Um, so uh, well, I think it, it, it was on a sort of accelerated trajectory already as as a as a way to deliver therapy that addressed many barriers that were preventing treatment uptake, um, like like cost, um, just service availability, those sorts of things, um, it was already sort of happening. 
but I think people in the public became aware of the fact that they existed um, and we saw a huge increase in uptake in digital interventions during the pandemic. Yep, totally. And, yeah, things like telehealth, they really have taken, you know, they've soared. They have absolutely soared. And I think you're totally right. Like even some of the work that we're doing over here in Perth, we have so many rural and remote communities that now have access to these services because of, you know, the push through through COVID. And that actually leads me to one of my final questions. And this is a bit of a curveball. So do you think that there are any positive aspects that have come out from the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think what you just mentioned in terms of the fact that we have um, greater service accessibility because of the increased focus on, on digital health interventions is one positive outcome. I think another positive outcome is just that increased awareness around mental health, um, mental health needs of, of young people and, and the population more broadly, and potentially a reduction in stigma. Um, if you've got a doubling of people, of young people who are experiencing clinically significant mental health symptoms, that it, it's just, um, it's more people experiencing these things and understanding what it's like. So I, I do think that for young people, stigma is still a thing. It, it is still something that is even now preventing them from engaging in mental health treatments. But I think the pandemic did result in a bit of a reduction and a, and a bit more understanding of what it is like to experience things like anxiety and depression. And and finally, this is just kind of, you know, I'm so intrigued. I'm so interested. Where do you see the digital health space going in, you know, the next couple of years? Where Where is your research going even? <laughs> it's a really good question. I could talk for a very long time about it. Um, I think... Technology is evolving so rapidly and I think we saw that during the pandemic, you know, all of a sudden we were doing everything online and all of all of the apps and the programs, they were adapted like, you know, sometimes within a week to be able to do things that we needed them to do. So I think that um, digital health interventions are going to have to um, evolve and adapt really rapidly alongside technology and that's something that's quite challenging for us as researchers because there is this quite long pipeline between developing an intervention, evaluating it, and then and then delivering it to the public. So, so that's quite a challenge. I think one of the other things that we're seeing increasingly and that we're doing as part of our research at Black Dog is, is um, acknowledging that there are benefits to digital technology, but there are also benefits to in-person therapy as well. And so um, we're looking at blended care approaches, which basically aim to take the best of both of those worlds and combine them together um, and hopefully generate, you know, even more effective treatments um, for, for people who need mental health care. Yep, amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sophie. You're very welcome. <laughs>